0: You know, Christmas is really the season of peace. Um, uh, If you watch a Christmas movie, a lot of times the theme will be somebody wants to have this peaceful Christmas, but it all blows up and there's chaos for two hours and then it all kind of settles down at the end, perfect ending, right? Our music at Christmas, uh, the theme of a lot of our music is peace and a lot of Christmas music is very peaceful and I think it speaks to what our hearts desire during this season. But really peace is at the heart of the Christmas message. 700 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah uh, actually uh, wrote a prophecy about who this Savior would be. And one of the titles that Isaiah proclaims about the coming Messiah was that he would be a Prince of Peace. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The prophet said that Jesus, the Messiah, would be the Prince of Peace. On the night that Jesus was born, if we fast forward all the way to Bethlehem, The night that Jesus was born, he's laid in a manger, in a feed trough, in a stable. And an angel appears to some shepherds that are out in the pastures surrounding Bethlehem. And that angel says, A Savior has been born to you. He's Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Lord. Here's the sign. You're going to find him in an unusual place wrapped in these swaddling cloths, wrapped in rags, and laying in a feed trough. And then the Bible says that an angelic army appeared to these shepherds in the sky Luke chapter 2, verse 13, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Peace is at the very heart of the Christmas message. The prophecy is Prince of Peace. The, The promise is peace on earth. But that leads me to a question, and I think it's a question that logically every single one of us, if you really think about it, you thought of this. If Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and if he came to bring peace on earth, then where is it? I mean, practically, why are there American troops in Afghanistan and Iraq and international conflicts around the world? Why is there conflict in my home? Why are there racial divisions in our nation? Why is it that I don't seem to find any personal peace, any, any peace of mind anymore? I'm, I'm in a constant state of, of chaos, it feels like. And so the question of peace is a very real one, I think, for all of us. Because in our hearts, all of us want peace. We, we want peace peace in our souls. We want to live at peace with other people. I know very few people who enjoy conflict. Our desire is for peace, and yet it seems so very elusive. Over the next few Sundays and on Christmas Eve, we're going to unpack peace. We're going to take a look at what the Bible says about it. We're going to define what it means, what it is. We're going to talk about why it's important, and we're going to deal with how you receive it. And so for these next few weeks, I want to challenge you over Christmas, whether you do so online or on television or you gather together here personally, I want to encourage you to be a part of this series of messages because I can't do it all in one particular setting. You wouldn't want me to do that. But we can begin today. One of the things that I really believe that most of us long for as much as anything is the type of peace that settles our soul. In Proverbs chapter 12, verse 25, the Bible says, anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down, but a good word makes it glad. Anxiety, worry in your heart will just weigh you down. I don't know if you feel this way or not, but I've talked to a few people and they it's a echo what I'm about to say to you. Just feel, it just feels like life is heavy. Like life is just heavy right now. And some of it is pandemic related. And some of it is maybe uh, questions about the future of our country. And some of it is just what we see around us. But there just seems to be a real heaviness in people. I have friends who go camping. Not like some of you do. I mean, they go real camping. They don't have the RV that's got the queen-size bed, and you do the push-outs on the side of it, and it's like your living room, and and, uh, you got the mobile satellite, portable satellite thing that you set up, and uh, the electric generator. I mean, they go like real camping, you know, and they carry a backpack with them. I got to think about that. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. That really starts when we're really young. Maybe preschool. That first day of preschool, and you wonder, Is anybody going to like me? Will, will Will I fit in? And as much as we'd like to think that preschool problem goes away, the truth is it's probably way down deep and most of us still struggle with that anxiety over what will people think of me. And then in school, we worry about things like, will I make the grade? Will I make the team? We worry about Will I get into the right college? And when I get to the right college, will I, will I actually be able to use my major and get a job? I mean, what am I going to do with this art history degree? Then we begin to think about, who will I date? Is there somebody out there that I'll spend the rest of my life with? Not just who will I marry, but maybe will I get married? We begin to ask ourselves those kind of questions. Will I establish a a home with somebody? Will I get married? Will I stay married? A lot of anxieties in life. And eventually you begin to hook a lot of new things onto the anxiety and the worry that we feel. This is not mine, um, so I'm rather inexperienced with it. But we begin to add on to that and then we get kids and we got to provide for them and got to buy braces and they got a puppy that got sick, and got to go to the veterinarian and and all that just bothers us. And then a pandemic comes along. (laughs) I noticed there's been a second run this past week, so I want to make sure I'm stocked up. And I mean, we just... We carry all of this worry and all of this anxiety, and we just load ourselves down with this stuff. And this thing has a lot of hooks. And here's what I want you to know. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. This thing weighs about 40 pounds. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. And here's what I want you to know you were not meant to live like this. Because some of you are carrying this around every day. You are anxious and you have no peace. You are not wired to live with anxiety and worry, you're not meant to live this way physically. Anxiety has physical consequences. People go to the doctor all the time, and what they find out is they're just stressed out. It has physical consequences. It has obviously relational consequences. There are conflicts in our homes, in our families, between husbands and wives, between parents and children. A lot of times because of this anxiety and stress that we are all carrying, we have no peace. And you are not meant to live this way spiritually. See, the gospel is good news. And the good news is that Jesus provides a way to lay this burden down. And that's what we're going to talk about in the course of these next few weeks. In John chapter 14, there is a passage of scripture, a singular verse that we'll launch from this morning. I have several other verses. They'll be on the screen or you can follow along with me. But Jesus is talking to his disciples. He has... Had the Lord's Supper with them or instituted the Lord's Supper and Passover meal in John chapter 13. But in John chapter 14, Jesus throws the disciples this curveball and he says, I'm going away. I'm leaving you guys behind. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And the disciples freak out. I mean, they are like, where is he going? We don't know how where he's, how in the world do we know how to get to where he's going. If we don't know where he's going, they are just beside themselves. And so they are stressed out. Their peace is gone. What little peace they had is gone. And Jesus begins to speak to them. In John chapter 14, verse 27 Here's what Jesus says, peace, I leave you. My peace, I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Jesus looks at his disciples and the the, the stress and the anxiety fills their face And he speaks a word of promise to them, peace, I leave you. Jesus is going to begin to share with them and with us how you take this burden and lay it down. Now Let's talk about what peace is, maybe, and define it. Thank you, guys. First of all, let's talk about the word. The word peace is used over and over throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, which is written in Hebrew, It is the word shalom. It's used over 250 times in the Old Testament. The word shalom is still the most common greeting that you would hear a Jewish person give to another person. If they were to meet you on the street and you were in Jerusalem, they would say to you, shalom. Translated peace, but it means more than let's not get in a fight. That's not what it means. It means more than that. It is a word that really means wholeness. It means not to be divided, uh, for there not to be conflict. But it also means not to be distracted. But it means to be be complete. It is a word that means, uh, it is a desire when the person speaks it to you, for God's very best blessings to flow into your life. That's what the word shalom means. In the New Testament, which is written in Greek, it's the word Irene. Irene means a tranquility of your soul. It is a settled aspect of the soul. And when Jesus uses that word, he's referring a great deal to that kind of peace. But how do you get there? Well, let's talk about that for just a few minutes. First of all, real peace comes from God. Now, the world will offer you a thousand counterfeits for peace. They'll offer you a multiple placebos for peace, but real peace, the kind of peace that truly settles your soul comes from God. Let's define the aspects of peace that we're going to explore through this series of messages. First of all, there is external peace. There's that kind of peace that settles relationships, that that keeps us in harmony with other people. And that can be as big as international relations, or it can be as intimate as husband-wife relationships. External peace, peace with others. Then there's internal peace, peace inside me, peace of mind, peace, that tranquility of my soul. But there is a third type of peace that the Bible speaks about that is absolutely essential if you're going to ever know external peace and internal peace you must first experience eternal peace. And here's how you receive that. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5 verse 1 Therefore, having been justified by faith we have peace With God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The greatest need for peace you have is for you to experience peace with God. Another way to put it would be this before you know a peace that comes from God, you've got to be at peace with God. Now, a lot of people would say, well, Bob, I I think I'm at peace with God. I, I think everything's okay between me and God. I mean, after all, I prayed a prayer at Vacation Bible School when I was six years old. I hadn't been to church since, but I went through the motions or, or I, I go to church sometimes, maybe like Christmas and Easter. Um, I, I think I'm okay with God. Let me help you to define some lines. We are at peace with God, the Bible says, when we are justified. Here's what that word means. That word means that God is declares you not guilty of your sin and God can declare you not guilty of your sin on one basis and one basis alone and that is that your sins are paid for that something somehow a transaction takes place in which the hostility between my sin and the holiness of God is reconciled that's the way I am justified and that comes into my life by faith It is God's grace that saves and justifies me through faith. But here's why I need that. Because before I come to know Jesus, the Bible says this, I am an enemy of God. I am an enemy of God. Listen to Romans chapter 5 verse 10. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now that first sentence in that may you may find that shocking that we are enemies of God before we come to faith in Jesus. It's not that we're just we've just gone astray. We have, but that's not all it's not that we're just lost like out there wandering spiritually though we are it's not just that we're separated from God we are aligned in battle array against the holiness of God against the truth of God we rebel against the existence of God himself we are enemies of God Every false religion, every every atheistic philosophy, every lifeless religion is at enmity with God. 2017, the New York Times ran an article that I found surprising that they would even run it. But it was called, the title of the article was, From Jihadi to Jesus. It was a story of a 25-year-old man named Bashir Muhammad. Bashir Muhammad was raised in the Kurdish area of northern Iraq. And in his teenage years, he was radicalized by the teaching of an imam who was actually one of the forerunners of the ISIS caliphate. Like he was the one saying that we need to do this sort of thing early on. And Bashir was radicalized by him, by his teachings, and he became an ISIS fighter, became a terrorist. Killed people, brutally, I mean brutally killed people with torturous methods. He went home to visit his family who were much more of a moderate point of view than him. And they urged him to leave that philosophy. They begged him to. And the girl that he was engaged to be married to also pleaded with him. Uh, they, they deeply loved one another. And he ple- she pleaded with him to please come back home. And t- she didn't want him to die in this, this fight. And he told them all no. He refused. As a matter of fact, he thought that maybe they were enemies of, of his cause as well. He was angry at them. But just before he left, his fiancée, the young lady he's going to marry, got very ill. She got tremendously sick. And the limited medical treatment that they had where they lived in that area, very poor region, could do nothing to help her. As a matter of fact, the doctor said she's going to die. Well, as much as he wanted to fight for his his false faith, he loved her. And he sought every avenue in his religion to try to seek for Allah to intervene and nothing happened. One day he called a cousin of his who had immigrated to Canada and on the phone call he learned that this cousin had converted to Christianity and he urged Bashir to call on Jesus, just to call on Jesus And at first, I mean, he just rejected that, but his girlfriend is dying. And so he finally said, you know what, what have I got to lose? And he called on Jesus. And what is remarkable is in the Muslim world, this seems to happen a good bit. He says, Bashir Muhammad says, Jesus appeared to him in a dream. And he promised him that his girlfriend was going to get better. And he told him to become his follower and Then the dream's over. And so Bashir Muhammad, now in Istanbul, Turkey, finds a Christian minister, and he says, I need to become a follower of Jesus. And this Christian minister led him to faith in Christ, right there. And he now lives, he wears a cross around his neck, he lives in Istanbul, he does underground Bible studies, because while it's not illegal to be a Christian in Turkey, it's certainly frowned on to be a Christian in Turkey, And he has gone from jihadi to Jesus. He has gone from enemy of God to friend of God. Listen to this, to reconciled into the family of God. And we say, yeah, great. Muslims need to do that. Let me tell you something. People in Texas need to do that. You may need to do that if you've never done it before. And there is only one way for that to be applied to your life. Colossians chapter 1 verse 19 for it was the father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself having made peace through the blood of his cross. The only way you will ever know peace with God is by trusting that on the cross Jesus shed his blood. The Bible says that on the cross, Jesus took your greatest burden, the burden of your sin. He took your greatest burden and he placed it on himself. He who knew no sin became our sin so that he could make us the righteousness of God in him. Let me tell you what it means that Jesus died on that cross to justify you to reconcile you, to take you from being an enemy of God to a friend of God, to the family of God. It means this, forever God is on your side. You can have peace with God because he is forever on your side. Peace, I leave you. My peace, I give to you. You see, Jesus can become your prince of peace today if you'll trust him. Secondly, real peace comes through trust. Romans chapter 15, verse 13 says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. Here's the expression. In believing. Peace comes by faith, by trusting. The reality is that for so many of us, we say, oh, I don't have any peace. I, don't, I, don't, I have a peace problem. Let me help you with something. If you have a peace problem, you have a trust problem. My peace problem is usually a lack of trust in the fact that God has provided, that God will come through. I've been a Christian since I was 12 years old. And in the years that I have been a Christian, this is what, there's one thing that I have learned, maybe above all others, that God is worthy of my trust. He has proven that he is trustworthy. It may not always come in the timing that I think it ought to come in. It may not always come in the way that I think it ought to come. But I have seen him move and work and he is worthy of my trust a little bit later in John's gospel right after this by the way if you like you read from a red letter translation you know where the words of Jesus are in red what you'll notice is that chapter 14 15 16 and chapter 17 is a prayer but those are I mean there's a lot of red in those chapters So this whole thing is a sermon and a prayer, basically, that Jesus gave to the 11 disciples Judas has left to betray him. And then he goes out to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he is arrested. They take him then to the high priest, and finally they decide at daybreak they're going to take him to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. He goes before Pilate, and there before Pilate, where he could have pleaded his case The Bible says that Pilate asked him a series of questions and Jesus just refused to respond. Just silence. He doesn't say anything. And finally, this self-important, pompous Roman governor has had enough. He has had his fill of this Galilean prophet teacher. And in John chapter 19, verse 10, he says to him, you do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and I have the authority to crucify you? You don't speak to me. Do you know who I am? I love Jesus' response. Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. In other words, you can crucify me, you can let me go, but whatever happens here is what God wills to happen here. God's in control of this situation. Jesus absolutely trusted two things and two things he knew. That God the Father loved him and that God the Father would provide. And whatever happened was going to be the best. Now what happened was Jesus went to a cross. But you know what? It was for the best. It was for our best. It was for our good that he suffered and he sacrificed It was to redeem us because he loves us and he wants the very best for us. What that tells me is that my God can be trusted. I can have peace because I know that God is eternally on my side, or maybe better put, I'm eternally on his side by faith. And I know that I can trust him, no matter what the situation. I mean, I know some of our seniors are getting to that place where they're anxious about, man, am I going to get into the right school? Trust him. Trust him. Some of you guys in the college ministry, I mean, you're like, man, this pandemic, nobody's hiring anybody. How am I going to get a job when I get out of school? All those sort of things are going on in their minds. Trust him. Trust him. My wife and I spent many years first hoping for, then longing for, and then praying for, and then almost giving up on having a baby. I-, I know that there are couples who are struggling with that. Trust him. Trust him. Some of you are wondering, is my marriage going to make it to 2021? Trust him. Is my business going to make it? Trust him. He said, Bob, that's so, it's too simple. The Bible's not that hard, people. It's not. He has proven that he is trustworthy, so trust him. He's on your side, and that'll bring you peace. One, one final thought, and I'm going to be done for this morning. Now, we're going to unpack our peace next week. We're going to talk about how you have this sense of internal peace in more depth next week. But let me talk about one other thing that begs to be spoken of from this particular passage, and that is that real peace is not the absence of trouble. Real peace comes in spite of trouble. Jesus says, peace I leave with you. I'm depositing Peace in your account. I'm leaving it with you. I'm giving it to you as a gift. And then he makes a contrast. It's really interesting. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Jesus is saying, I have peace to give to you, but the world has a peace that it will offer you, and my peace is different from the world's peace. What kind of peace does the world offer us? Well, I'll say, tell you this the world's offer of peace is temporary. And it is built totally around the absence of conflict or trouble. And anytime conflict or trouble comes in, the world's peace just shatters like a pane of glass. The world's peace is built around maybe the expression, ignorance is bliss. You've heard that before? Ignorance is bliss. It's the family playing on a beach. Not knowing that a tsunami is coming, ready to sweep them away. Ignorance is bliss? Maybe not. Maybe ignorance is death. It's a group of workers in a a, a meeting room in Mexico City in an office building. And they're planning and they they have this product they're going to roll out. And they believe that they're going to make a fortune for their company and they're all going to get bonuses and, and this product is going to be incredible and they're, they're planning for all of this and then an earthquake strikes Mexico City and the building they're in collapses and only two people survive and the rest of them die in that moment. They believe that they had it all together. They were at peace with their, with their product and thought that they were on the right track and all of a sudden tragedy strikes. It's a guy named David Capella. David Capella is an off, was an off-duty firefighter In Genoa, Italy, on August 14th, 2018, he's driving across a suspension bridge that went across a river in that city, when all of a sudden he's listening to his favorite song, he's rocking along, he says in his car, and everything's just great, and the car in front of him disappeared, just fell. He hears a rumble and a roar around him, his car begins to tremble, and all of a sudden his car is plummeting straight down 150 feet to a riverbed. David said as his car fell, he said to himself, I'm dead, I'm dead, I'm dead. He wasn't, but 43 other people did die that day. One of the suspension bridge cables snapped, and those bridges are built and engineered in such a way that all the weight then began to shift and it snapped other cables and the whole bridge collapsed into that riverbed. Ignorance is bliss. That's what the world tells us. That's what the world calls peace. It's almost like denying that there's going to be trouble. Or the world offers you peace through a placebo. That's why we have an opioid crisis. We're medicating ourselves trying to find some sense of peace. When the original stay-at-home order went into place from like March into May, Liquor stores were declared essential businesses in many places. And so liquor stores were open. But did you know that online liquor stores soared by over 400%? We're medicating, self-medicating our pain. Or it's why people plunge into pornography to soothe their, their pain or their anxiety to escape. All of those things are just placebos because when you pursue them, they may offer you some temporary numbing of the pain. But peace is not numbing the pain. The peace that Jesus offers you is so much better than that. It is not that there is no pain. The peace that Jesus offers you is his presence in the middle of pain and problems. One last verse. In this same section of scripture, this same sermon, we might say teaching, Jesus comes back to the subject of peace near the end in John sixteen thirty three. Here's what he said: These things I've spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. There's gonna be trouble. But take courage. I have overcome the world. Peace is not the absence of problems, peace is the presence of Jesus in my problems. It's knowing there is a God who is eternally on my side, and he is trustworthy. And what he offers me is his presence in my defeats, in my depression, in my desperation, in the death of a loved one, or even at the moment of my own death. Peace is his offer. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you just to be so thankful, in a world that is so divided and distracting, in a world in which we could be so anxious and overwhelmed by the troubles, the problems, and the pressures, you speak peace to us and you promise that you'll never leave us or forsake us. I thank you for the promise and for Those in this room, those who are watching today who are fearful, who are anxious, I pray for the appropriation of your peace in these days. But I pray also for those who've never trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior, who need to make peace with you through the shed blood of our Savior on a cross, that today would be a day that they would turn from their sin in repentance and totally trust what Jesus did on a cross. I ask you, Father, to come now by your Spirit and draw them to faith in Jesus. Lord, I ask that they would have the courage to respond, to respond to you and give their life to you and trust you. Father, thank you for the offer of peace.